This is Disaster Tales. I'm Kate Fairweather. My guest today is Dr. Gleb Zaporsky, and he is a disaster avoidance expert. And he's written several books, including Blind Spots Between Us, Never Go With Your Gut, Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal, which I think we're going to be talking about today, and The Truth Seekers Handbook, which is also interesting to me. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. And it's been a nice day so far, and I'm looking forward to our interview. Good. Me too. So, um, what you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? I know that you're a doctor of neurology, is that correct? I'm a doctor of neuroscience and neuroscience. behavioral economics. So that's my area of expertise. I've gotten involved in this ever since I was pretty young. So I was always fascinated with how do we avoid disasters? So I'm known as the disaster avoidance expert. Mm-hmm. And I've been looking at disasters for a long period of time. And of course, <laughs> that's part of our shared experience. But the that's way right. I approach disasters is a little bit differently than you. What I focus on is what leads to disasters, specifically the kind of decisions that lead to disasters. Mm -hmm. Because there are two types of decisions. When you look at disasters, they result from our decisions inherently. And there are two types of decisions that lead to disasters. One is when we actively make a decision that results in disaster. One or a series of decisions, and there are all sorts of disasters. When I talk about disasters, I mean anything that significantly impacts the business's bottom line or individual's life. Thing like that. So a significant negative outcome, whatever you would perceive as significant. Right. Then, so you have a disaster that leads from our own decision making. Plenty of those. We can talk about that. And I've made plenty of those myself. <laughs> happens, right? And the second type of decision that results in disaster is when we fail to make a decision in a timely manner to head off a disaster. So that's the second type of decision that results in disaster. And either of those is pretty bad. So I've been looking at that ever since I was young. I was fascinated in decision making because there's all that stuff about going with your gut, following your intuition, trust your heart. And I saw so many people, and I myself made many mistakes doing that when I was young, and I realized that we really don't have a good way of approaching decision-making. There are so many people who make bad decisions because they go with their, with their gut. I mean, I was born in 81. I came of age around the dot-com boom when companies like Webvan, Pets.com, Boo.com were booming. Well, just a couple of years later, when I was, you know, 21, 2001, 2002, all of these companies went bust. So all the CEOs, all the leaders who were praised as the genius decision makers in 1999 in the Wall Street Journal, where, you know, they were the heroes. Now now they were the zeros. They were the villains. And that's <laughs> something they talk about companies like Enron and, you know, the Bernie Mathers of the world, uh, Worldcom, who made maliciously bad decisions to hide their losses from the dot-com bust through various fraudulent accounting methods. And this is, you know, you can see that, so the one was the unmalicious decision-making, just an intentionally stupid (laughs) decision-making. And the second type was maliciously bad Mm -hmm. decision-making. And all of those led to disasters for all those folks, whether the tech leaders of Webvan, Pets.com, and the investors who invested into it, or the Bernie Madoffs of the world, the leaders of Worldcom, and so on, and the investors who invested and who lost their life savings. Mm -hmm. So seeing that as a game of age, 
And that really spurred my interest in decision-making, especially financial business decision-making, how the business leaders and professionals, executives, why do they make such bad decisions that lead to so much suffering for others? And I've always been motivated by what's called utilitarianism. That's my moral value stance, the mm -hmm. desire to do the most good for the most number. And so I decided to study decision-making. And that's when I became a coach, consultant, trainer, because I started studying this, people started asking me about it. So that's, I've been doing that for over 20 years. And as I started off on that career track and that journey, I learned that the kind of research, the kind of information that's out there on decision-making is pretty bad. We don't have really good information in the public sphere. So I had to go into academia. And that's where I headed into cognitive neuroscience, which is the study of how our brain works and causes us to make certain decisions, including mm -hmm. badly. Very often we'll talk about that. And behavioral economics. How do we as human beings behave in economic situations? So that was the crux of my education, and that's how I went into this field. I spent over 15 years in academia, publishing a number of peer-reviewed journals, spent seven years as a professor at Ohio State. So that's the combination of my expertise that led to all the books that you mentioned so that I've been publishing recently. <laughs> okay. Well, and, and I find that very, very interesting because, like, kind of like you, I grew up dealing with the disasters as even as a child you know like in my family those kind of disasters sometimes I was the only one that was like calm enough to deal with it <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, and then I went into you know studying disasters um, I did a lot of volunteering and then our emergency manager said you know you can get a degree in this and I said what you can <laughs> so I did and that's my interest in disasters. But I think that your take on it is, is really um, original. It's a, something we haven't really talked about here before. So I um, thank you. Thank you for being here. So um, one of, I know that you've talked a lot about the, um, the, the, the biases that we have. Can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that? My expertise, the core area of my expertise is in what's called cognitive biases mm -hmm. and specifically how to defeat them. Now, cognitive biases are the specific, fun, screwed up ways that our brain causes to make bad decisions, mm -hmm. specific patterns of mental errors that cause us to go in the wrong direction. And we have to understand where they're coming from. You know, when you talk about going with your gut, following your heart, you know, talking about doing what's comfortable with you, what feels right, that's all the same thing. Your intuition, all of these things. It says when you feel like something, is right, you go ahead and do it. Or when you feel something is true, then you go ahead and believe it. That's what the going with your gut, following your intuition, trusting your heart is about. Unfortunately, our gut reactions, our instincts, our heart, whatever you call it, they're not wired for the modern world. That's the essential problem, the fundamental, fundamental problem of what we're dealing with as human beings. Our instincts aren't wired for the modern world, they're wired for the savannah environment. I mean, think about it, the modern world has really been around since World War II, our modern complex world, and the internet has been around for only a generation, right? So mm -hmm. we are really not wired to deal with this, with our gut reactions, our instincts. They cause us to go wrong in so many ways in our modern world. They are wired for the savannah environment. When we lived in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people, and that was very important for us to be tribal. So orient toward looking for people who look like us, who think like us, who share our values, and oppose those who don't. I mean, if we weren't sufficiently tribal, we'd be kicked out of our tribe and we'd die. <laughs> or 
our tribe, if, if the other tribal members weren't sufficiently tribal and conformist to the tribe, the tribe would fall apart and we'd all die. You know, we are all the descendants of those who didn't die. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we are very tribal. And you see, you're seeing, you know, the protests going on with Black Lives Matter, all the racism and all of these issues. And the underlying reasons for all of these in-tribe, out-tribe dynamics have to do with that savannah environment where people feel a certain way. And, you know, we can talk about unconscious bias. I've written a lot about it, especially in my book, The Blind Spots Between Us, How to Overcome Unconscious Cognitive Bias and Build Better Relationships. And that was about personal, professional, social, communal relationships, a structure of our society. And that's a lot about tribalism, why we're so tribal, how to overcome these tribal patterns. And that's, so that's kind of tribalism. Now, that's only one dynamic out of many that cause us to head in the wrong direction just because of how our brain is wired. Mm -hmm. Another one that really we need to think about and pay attention to is called the fight or flight reflex. Now, the fight or flight response. The primary way that we are wired to deal with threats is the fight-or-flight response. That was great for the savanna environment. Our ancestors faced intense, immediate, in-the-moment threats, like saber-toothed tigers. Now, yes. You might have heard of it <laughs> called the saber-toothed tiger response. We had to jump at a hundred shadows to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger, or to fight, that's the flea response, or to fight an attacking hostile tribal member from a hostile tribe, right? Mm -hmm. So we are the descendants of those who had a very strong flight response, you know, who, who had a flight response just a little bit faster than yeah. the other guy. <laughs> you only have to be faster than one person when the exactly. saber-toothed tiger is after you, yes. Exactly. So we are the descendants of those or who had a strong fight response and or strong fight response who are able to fight off those tribal members. Mm -hmm. So we still have that very strong, we're the descendants of those, we're the successful descendants of those who did so. And we still react with a fight or flight response in the modern world. Now, Think about what happens if you get an email from a client with an irate email from a client mm -hmm. complaining about something. What's the intuitive thing to do? The one that you, know, you would like to do what your gut feels is right. One aspect, one sort of personality, people who are more in the flight response, their tendency would be to ignore this information and delete the email, never happen, move to spam, <laughs> move to <Yeah>. outcome. <laughs> That's the tendency because you don't want to feel, deal with it. It's so uncomfortable. It feels like the wrong thing. And that is the, and that's a, aspect of our personality that's the flight response some people are in that category they have a strong flight response and that's their intuitive tendency or if you don't have clients if you're within an organization imagine if you get an email from your supervisor or something like that right i get those yes yes there you go <laughs> something like that then the other type of personality whether you're dealing with a client from who you're a client so you have clients or whether you're within an organization you're dealing the other type of response that you want to do, and that's a certain other personality type. That's more of my personality type. That's the, you have the fight response. You want to write back and say, what are you talking about? That, that's stupid. I'm right, you're wrong, you're a jerk, I'm great. <laughs> that's the second type of response. Yes. That's the fight response. You know, neither of those is the right response if you want to succeed, whether as an entrepreneur or a business leader dealing with clients, external stakeholders, or within an organization dealing with internal organizational stakeholders. Mm -hmm. What you want to do is you want to understand that whatever happened is an outcome of the systems, the processes, your organization, the activities that you're doing. And so you want to understand that what happened is one, out, is one outcome of an underlying system and process. And you want to look at the root causes, the underlying systems and processes that led to this negative outcome. 
and you want to figure out what led to this negative outcome and then respond in the email saying, oh, hey, uh, apologize about this. I figured out what caused this. Here are the root causes mm -hmm. to the extent that you feel appropriate as describing it. And here's what I'll do to address it. So you understand, you apologize, you understand, you say you understand the cause. Here's what you'll do to fix the situation. And you smooth rattled feathers. And then you go forward to actually address this. So you now, collaborate. This, yeah. Yes, it's very elaborate and it's complex and it's completely not intuitive. That's not something <laughs> that feels intuitive to do, right? Completely not intuitive to do that. But it's a thing that you want to do if you want to succeed as a leader, as an entrepreneur, dealing with external stakeholders, salesperson, whatever, or as an internal stakeholder dealing with people in the organization if you want to you know, actually survive and thrive and be promoted and, and so on and go on right. and exactly. develop your career yeah. within your organization, right? Yeah, you have to, it's not natural for us to try and, and get along, you know, and, and to stop and think about what specifically reaction you need to have and not just have your initial reaction and go with it. Exactly. And right. it's and there's a lot of complex dynamics that go on there that mm -hmm. you have to understand and that you have to process, that you have to develop. Those are completely not intuitive behaviors to have. Right. So that's, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of one type of threat that we're dealing with in the modern world, kind of immediate social dynamics. But the other type of threat that we are dealing with a lot is long-term, ambiguous, uncertain. It might come from an article someone forwards you about a weird disease developing in the heartland of China in Wuhan, right? Right, so exactly. <laughs> our intuitive tendency is to ignore that sort of thing because who cares? It's kind of the heartland of China. You know, it's not going to reach here, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, guess what? Wuhan is a city of 11 million people. It's a complex industrial city. It's one of the biggest cities in China. It's within the top 10. And it produces over $22 billion per year of revenue. It's called the Chicago of China for kind of mm -hmm. the equivalent. And it has something like 200 international flights per day, which and that was before, of course, the, when the virus right. was still covered and was just spreading widely, communally. So, of course, it's going to get out. You have 10,000 people, you know, 200 people, 500 per flight, you know, 10,000 people or so per day traveling from Wuhan elsewhere. And so right. that, of course, is going to get out. You have to analyze the situation. You have to understand it, look at the risks and manage them and the disastrous consequences. But that's not what our gut tells us. And so a lot of people, when they first heard the information, they, there are a number of cognitive biases that we'll talk about in depth that have to do with each of these problematic behaviors, who ignored the information that, you know, who didn't care about it. And then as the information was coming closer, they, there was more and that became more of a threat. There was the fight or flight response. Again, a number of people they f flee from the information, they ignore it, they say, oh, it's not a big deal, it's nothing more than a common cold, you know, mm -hmm. we should ignore it, not, not a thing we should worry about. And then other people went to this, you know, they had the fight response, they went to the store, they bought up all the toilet paper, right. you know, canned goods that they <laughs> won't eat because it's you know, not, not really good stuff. And that was a pr another sort of problem. Neither of those, of course, businesses have the equivalent response. A number of businesses and turn to their business continuity plans, their emergency business preparedness plans, disaster avoidance. And I'm someone who prepared a lot of these plans, so I know mm -hmm. what I'm talking about. Yes. These are not the right response for the situation. Those plans are great for when there's a blizzard or when there's a flood, like let's say when Houston got flooded and there's a right. one to two week interruption in business. That's what business continuity plans are for. That's great. That, that's the perfect fit for a business continuity plan. Mm -hmm. But it's a really bad fit for what's happening with COVID. 19 because it's a major long-term slow moving
resulting disaster of a train wreck. Yeah, and that's... it's a major disruptor. Acting, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Our business continuity plans are for a sprint, they're not for a marathon. Mm -hmm. And acting, running in emergency mode is going to lead to what we're seeing right now. A lot of people being burned out on COVID-19 and mm -hmm. trying to get back to normal. And this is a terrible decision, as we see a number of people have wasted a lot of money because they rushed back to reopen. A number right now, pretty much a lot of states in the Southwest and elsewhere in the US right. are closing down. So a lot of these businesses lost a lot of money because they rushed to reopen way too quickly. And they're not really realizing the consequences of doing so. Exactly. Businesses and, of course, people who are not thinking about the long term, and there are specific cognitive biases behind all of these. But that's another type of bad response due to the fight or flight that we're dealing with, and then we're not seeing the consequences of failing to treat this as it is, a major disruptor that will change our world forever. Yes. So it's a marathon, not a sprint, but people are treating it as a sprint. So those are some of the reasoning, that's the, some of the underlying framework behind what's going on. We're all very much driven by our gut reactions, by our emotions. We're not realizing that's happening. We're making bad decisions as a result. And unless we take steps to address the underlying patterns, the emotions, the feeling that cause us to make bad decisions, we're going to get in a heap of trouble. And we're seeing that happening. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about COVID. And I have to tell you that as I was reading the newest book that you have put out, the decisions that you were making in your work are the same ones I was making in my family because in the middle of February, I picked up on that this was spreading and I started to, I didn't go to the store and buy out all the toilet paper, but every time I went to the store, I'd buy an extra one or an extra this mm -hmm. or that. And so that I could lay up a little bit and it's not depriving anyone else. I also went and talked to our school system here because my grandson goes to school here and I talked to them about what they were going to do. And they said, well, we're, we're working on our, our cleaning procedures. And I said, you're going to have to, I said, he, they said, we don't even think it's going to get here. It's, it's in San Antonio, but that's it. I know. <laughs> and so I said, no, I think that you need to plan for distance learning. You need to plan for being closed for at least a month, if not more. And you need to figure out what you're going to do with your teachers, how you're going to connect with your students, you know, where you're going to give, get the equipment for them. And, and I went through all of that and explained that to them, and they were shocked. But they listened, which is good. And then, you know, just the general thing. I've been predicting things like this shut, the first shutdown, which to me was a, a, a terrible waste of people's time. They lost money. They lost their jobs. They lost their businesses. And it didn't do any good because... In order for this to be to work, we have to do it everywhere at the same time and not play whack-a-mole. Just where it pops up here, we hit it, we have, pops up there. Until it's small enough to where we can manage it. But that's going to take a while. And then the other thing that I, was, that I was predicting was that there would be violence once people got out of their lockdown. And that also has happened. And so the next thing that I'm looking at is that this is a very good time for us to have a uh, cyber attack. And mm -hmm. so I'm hoping that I'm not right about that, but <laughs> it's something that's come up on my radar and I'm thinking, you know, that's something maybe we ought to be looking at. 
Well, so, in terms of cyber attacks, I've been talking to a number of businesses and following trends. So this is so I work with a number of businesses, my clients. There have been many more hacking. So cyber attacks are happening not on the broad countrywide terrorist level, but uh, much more individual businesses, leaders getting hacked. And why is that happening? Well, because a lot more people are working from home, which they should. That's great. They should be working from home. But what they're not realizing is they're not adapting their security and their compliance protocols to working from home. So one of the biggest problems, when you look at business continuity plans, one of the biggest problems with the current situation of treating it as a sprint, not a marathon, is that in a sprint, okay, it's a one-week to two-week interruption. It's not really going to lead to too much more hacking in this sense when you're working from home. But if you're permanently moving to work from home and it's countrywide, there's going to be a lot of cyber hackers who are going to be Mm -hmm. taking advantage of this. And indeed, this is what's happening. So if you look at FBI statistics on cyber hacking, it's greatly increased. A lot more cyber hacking of various sorts, phishing, businesses are getting hacked. Why? Well, because people are working at home right now. And at home, they're not used to following the same cybersecurity protocols that they're following at work. That's just Correct. very simple. So there, it's a, so part of the context. So when one of the cognitive biases that we have to deal with and understand is called framing, framing effects. We are very much shaped by our context. So the frame uh, refers to the fact that whatever context surrounds us very much influences us. It very much influences our mindset and causes us to make bad decisions when it's not aligned with the kind of activities we want to be doing at the moment. So when we're at home, and we are not used, we haven't set up an office at home, it's an emergency situation, we are not treating that environment as a work environment in many ways. It's not prompting us to think about work in the right ways. And one of the ways, there are many ways that this goes wrong. One of the ways is that there's a lot more cyber hacking going on because people aren't following the kind of cybersecurity protocols that they would be following at work. And so this is a big problem. This is one of the two problems that's happening, human behavior. The other one is a matter of funding, where people are material resources. At home, people's computers and software is not nearly as hardened against cyber hacking as it is at work. So think about your protocol network. When you're at work, you have your IT scanning things, you have a number of programs going on in the background that can quickly notice breaches, close them down, and so on. You don't have that at your home network, right? You have your individual computer, you have your individual software. It's not protected. It's not nearly as protected. So people don't have that level of protection that they did. So right now, what I'm having my clients do is both have people get a lot more training in following cybersecurity protocols at home. And if you're a business leader, business owner, you should be really thinking about this disaster. The risk management professional, you should be thinking about this. And then providing them with funding to have their computer have more variety of cybersecurity, protocols, defenses at home, and so so various uh, cybersecurity things at home that they need, and we can go in depth into that, but that's the kind of things that you want to be thinking about in terms of cybersecurity. So I just want to respond to that, what you were saying. I'm sorry. So we're talking about like going from Wi-Fi to hard wire as far as connecting? That's one thing. I mean, one of the things is basic antivirus. I mean, a lot of... You'll be surprised how many executives don't have antivirus, and they, they have you know the the inbuilt Microsoft antivirus. And you know I don't have you know inherent problems with Microsoft as an antivirus, but it's not top of the line. Let's just be honest. Right. There are a variety of things that you can do that are much better than you know, the Microsoft firewall antivirus, and a number of them just 
because their executives especially don't tend to be as so cybersecurity savvy as someone who, you know, they're young, they're older, they're not as cybersecurity savvy. Some of them disable their firewalls because they don't their firewalls are incompatible with a number of sites that they want to visit. Right. And, you know, these aren't you know, porn sites or anything like that. But they don't know how to make sure that their firewalls don't prevent them from visiting sites that they actually need for their work and so on. So there's a lot of issues that go on, especially with older executive professionals that can be addressed if they have the appropriate software. Yeah. So, yeah, because it's just a whole different mindset that you have to come up with. And and those biases that you talk about that we have in our regular everyday work where we want to go back to regular everyday aren't applicable here in this situation. Yes. And it's going to be a long while before we can go back to anything like we had even six months ago. That's something to, that's really important to realize. And I talk about this in my book, Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic, is that we tend to fall into what's called the normalcy bias. Now, the normalcy bias has to, it was, has to do with the fact that we look at the future and we evaluate the future based on the short-term past, on the medium-term, short-term past. Now, so think about yourself in the future. You know, when you look at yourself in the future, let's say five years from now, you probably think of yourself, you know, a little bit wiser, older version of your current self. Mm-hmm. That's our tendency when we think about ourselves in the future. Now, think about yourself back in the past, so five years ago. You'll probably realize that you're, in many ways, a very different person than you were five years ago. So you've probably changed quite a bit from where you were five years ago to where you are right now. But we don't realize that it's likely to be the case. It will change just as much, if not more, in the next five years as we had in the past five years. That's not intuitive for us to realize. That's not comfortable for us to realize. In the Savannah environment, we didn't change nearly as much as we did right now. In the Savannah, and our world didn't change. It was just, you know, changing of the seasons was the main dynamic. We can be pretty sure, you know, winter, spring, summer, fall would be following that cycle. And that would be the main thing. You know, we'd be following some herds or something like that. That would be the main thing that would change. But in the modern environment, there's many more changes, many more dynamics that are going on. And we we fall into what's called the normalcy bias. The normalcy bias is where we perceive that the future will be normal, just like the past, and it won't. There's so many disruptions that are going on right now, um, technology-based disruptions. We talked about the internet as a major disruption. Social media is a major disruption. Smartphones is a major disruption. So many technology disruptions that we don't think about that really will influence our world going forward. Then, of course, we have the 2008-2009 fiscal crisis, which influenced the whole world in a very yes. negative way. And, of course, 9-11, which more America-specific, but certainly influential. And right now, the coronavirus pandemic. That is incredibly influential. So we're dealing with shutdowns. You know, we have a whole period of shutdowns, restrictions. And then now reopening, some states are clearly opening too quickly based on their numbers. They have coronavirus is quickly shooting up and they're closing down again. And what people aren't realizing is that they opened up too quickly. They're not following the right protocols. What they should have done when they closed down was institute much more testing, contact tracing regimes in order to manage the coronavirus pandemic. And they're not doing that. A lot of people aren't following the protocols, social distancing masking guidelines, protocols. So people are falling into the normalcy bias. They want the world to go back to normal. They feel like they want to go back to normal. They feel like they want 
to go back to December 2019 when you know coronavirus pandemic wasn't a thing. That's right. what they want to go back to, and they're trying to act as though the world is normal. They're falling into this normalcy bias trap. It's not normal. Our even if you know we have, we know that the earliest possible timeline when a vaccine will be approved will be by early 2021. That's what the earliest possible timeline by which vaccine will be approved. Vaccine is the only way to deal with COVID-19. So just to be super clear. Well, and when, look, my question about that, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but um, coronaviruses don't have vaccines. We don't really have any vaccines for Ebola or any of the other SARS, any of the other coronaviruses. So I'm not sure how we're going to get one for this. Well, what we do have is ineffective vaccines, let's say it that way. So the, our vaccine for the flu, for example, is only about 50% effective, 40 to 60% depending on the year. So that is... You know, we, we've been trying to get a vaccine for the flu for about a century, and we're still only at 50% effectiveness. So hopefully, for some reason, you know, that we can get a more effective vaccine for the COVID-19. But there's a lot of scientists who are saying that, you know, vaccine for COVID-19 might be only 50% effective. We, we can get lucky. Let's, you know, even in the most optimistic scenario, you know, we'll have a vaccine as good as it is for measles, which is really high, very effective. And right, of course. <laughs> so about only about 50% of the population have expressed willingness to take a COVID-19 vaccine, by the way. So this is yes. a, a whole other fight. So we let's say we have a vaccine approved by early 2021. And that's you know, highly effective, you know, magic happens. We're in, in that, you know, super optimistic scenario, less than 5% chance likelihood, by the way, <laughs> that that will right. happen. Well, what will have to happen next? You'll have to have production, distribution, widespread vaccination, convincing of people who are anti-vaxxers to take it. I mean, how long will that take? And probably at least a year if we're if we're That's lucky. Right. So we're I pushing. I'm sorry. We're pushing into 2022 right now for dealing with COVID-19. And what will we be facing in the meantime? We're facing these waves of restrictions and loosenings. So we faced the first wave of restrictions, and there were some you know, bad things about the waves of restrictions. Like you said, we can talk about that later. But clearly, there's going to be, you know, regardless of what you and I think, uh, there's governors are going to be doing restrictions again, because that's the only way they haven't set up good contact tracing and testing regimes, which really necessary in order to address COVID-19. Our right. virtual dis social distancing masking guidelines, people aren't following these guidelines, partially because of you know some politicians not really being on top of indicating that people should follow these guidelines. So this is a dynamic that's very problematic and it's going on right now. And what we'll see is waves of restrictions and loosening. So we're having right now loosening followed by another restrictions and eventually we'll have some more loosenings and eventually we'll have some more restrictions so we're going to see repeating right. waves of these restrictions and loosenings for the next several years the next couple of years until we're dealing in the super optimistic scenario less than five percent chance you know the, by early 2022 we'll have widespread vaccination so that's very optimistic right. you know more likely it'll be 23 24 25 if we ever get there mm -hmm. so this is what we are, this is the world that we're facing, and people don't want to admit this. This is they don't want to acknowledge this. This is the normalcy bias writ large. They feel that the world should go back to normal, and because they feel that the world should go back to normal, they're acting as though the world is normal, not wearing masks, not not following guidelines, not realizing that what they need to do, their businesses need to fundamentally pivot their business model, their internal business model, their external business model. We can talk about what that means. People need to fundamentally pivot. 
their career plans because a lot of careers that has to do with in-person you know, entertainment, whatever, various activities are not good careers for them anymore. And they have yes. to fundamentally pivot their life plans because a lot of life plans are dependent on in-person interactions, travel, airplanes, whatever. And people need to change those. They don't realize that this is, these are things that they need to change. And even if a part of them realizes it, they really feel bad about this. They feel like they want to go back to normal. And they're letting their feelings drive them to make overwhelmingly bad decisions. And we're seeing the cognitive the traps that they're falling into, this normalcy bias trap. And so this is a very bad problem that is driving a lot of people into really bad situations. Well, I know that... Um when you were talking about anti-vaxxers a minute ago, I have, a, I have a, a friend who was telling me that, and she gets, goes and does deep diving into the internet when she gets concerned about things. But she said that she thinks that this entire thing is eugenics and that the, uh, the, the people that are dying at the highest rates are the same kind of people that Hitler put in concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so people with disabilities, people of color, people that are low income, certain religions where they feel like they have to be together to worship, and 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 she's not wrong, but I don't believe it's intentionally eugenics. But there are people that think that, and if they think that, no, they're not going to take that vaccine because that's just another way to get them out of the way, you know, <laughs> slip something in yes. that they don't want. And and yeah, uh, it's, it's very unfortunate they don't realize the causation correlation dynamics where people who are, let's say, if we take only one category, let's say African-Americans, and this is a controversial category, but we have to understand African-Americans, black people are dying at a much higher rate than white people. When you look at the correlation behind this, you'll also see that just factually, African-Americans are much more sick than white people because they tend to be much more poor due to systematic racism and their systematic racism, which is denying their access to health care, which is preventing them from accessing health care at the right rate, from having as healthy of a lifestyle. They can't pay for gyms and so yeah, on and exactly. healthy diet at the same rate that white people can. And those diabetes and so on are higher among African-Americans. Those are also the causes that if you catch COVID-19, then you and if you have diabetes you're more likely to get more sick and die than if you are white than if you don't have diabetes so if you have yeah so if you have a higher proportion of african-americans who have diabetes then you will you will absolutely certainly without any without the disease targeting race in any sort of category, you will happen to have the, it will happen to be the case that African-Americans will be dying at a higher rate because of they have more diabetes. And this is just, diabetes is only one out of a myriad of conditions. Right. And less that healthcare. Has to do with this. Less healthcare because, right, so less healthcare, diabetes, and African-Americans tend to work in lower class jobs that have, that permit less social distancing. So manufacturing and so on that are lower income jobs. And so they can do, there's less social distancing available for African-Americans. So they're dying at a higher rate. And this is what's happening. And this is just one category. This is unfortunate, tragic, sad, but it's not in any way targeting the African-American population. What we should be doing is protecting African-Americans not at a higher, what we should be doing is protecting people with diabetes at a higher rate than we are protecting people again with diabetes. And African-Americans as a result will be more protected because they are more vulnerable and so on. 
And my husband. Yeah. Um, one of the things I've learned from studying pandemics, and I'm actually seeing some of this now, um, is that after the pandemic, when there's been a, a large die-off, the, the survivors have many more assets than they used to. And that makes them less likely to take a lower income job uh, that they'll hold out as for higher labor payment than they would normally get. And I've actually seen Target has had to raise their their hourly wage in order to get their employees back off of, off of unemployment, which is paying them more. So I can see businesses having to kind of rethink of how they deal with their employees as well. Yeah, and that's only one dynamic that they want to be thinking about in-person activities. Once, one of the things that I'm very much focusing on with my clients is trying to get them to get to do as much virtual as possible. Virtual interactions, virtual teams, internal business model, and external business model. And if you look at the kind of changes that you need to make to do internal, let's, let's take a look at the internal business model. There are six areas that you want to be thinking about. One of these is internal controls. So one of the six areas, I talked about cybersecurity as in one of the internal controls. It's definitely an important one. Financial controls. You need to do, when you're doing virtual social, when you're doing a virtual business, you have to have different financial controls than you are when you're doing in-person. You know, so you need to adapt that. You need to adapt things like compliance. So and I work with a number of healthcare and financial firms. So compliance with various government regulations on patient privacy and financial record keeping, those are going to be different. And your internal measurements of effectiveness and efficiency, those will need to be different if you're going to do, if you're going to do virtual collaboration. That's one out of six areas. Another one is engagement and motivation. We talked about framing. And when you're around other people who are doing work in the same office, you'll be framed as doing this work. We're very tribal creatures, so we're very much influenced by people around us. When your other people are doing work, you will want to do work. When other people around you are your family, it will be much harder to motivate yourself to engage with the work that you're doing, especially when you're preoccupied with, let's say, your kids being home because they're doing distance learning as opposed to going to school. So that makes it much harder, and that's something that employees need to address as well. How do you motivate and engage people when they're at home? Another area that this third area is virtual communication. When people are in the office, they're used to communicating face-to-face, having interactions, and there's already a lot of problems in communication when you're doing face-to-face. When you're moving to virtual, you're doing a lot more text-based communication because you're using things like Microsoft Teams, Slack, Asana, Trello, various virtual collaboration platforms. And those are text-based primarily. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that people are used to uh, have to be doing. But they're losing very important aspects of communication, which have to do with our emotions. And our emotions are conveyed through not through the not as much through the content of what we say, but the way that we say it through tone of voice, through body language, things like this. When I say I think Mary should take that project, or I think Mary should take that project. Those two sentences mean very different things. That's right. But, (laughs) of course, when I write them down, they mean the same thing. So there's a lot more miscommunication going on right now with virtual communication. And those are things that people have to be professionally, that's professional development. So I talked about professional development on cybersecurity, professional development on virtual collaboration and communication. Another area is resolving conflicts. Noticing conflicts, noticing noticing problems and resolving them. When you're face-to-face, it's much easier to notice problems because you see people's expressions, you see people's dynamics, what's going on. When you're virtually interacting, it's much harder to even notice problems. And of course, then you have 
communication troubles and resolving them. So that's another big area, noticing and addressing problems. How do you do that? That's an area of professional development. Mm -hmm. Fifth area, how do you make sure that people cultivate trust? So you, in your teamwork, in your dynamics, in the team, in the office, it's very natural. You come together around the water cooler in the break room over some donuts, talk about, hey, what are your kids doing? You know, your vacation plans, local sports ball team and how you hate the sports ball team down the road. So that happens naturally. It doesn't happen naturally in a, in a virtual environment. You don't have that interaction. You need to create, and we can talk about what that means, and a lot of that, you need to create venues, virtual venues for collaborating and building trust. And finally, sixth area of internal, and there is a whole separate area for external activities, right. but for internals, the sixth area is accountability. So when you have, when you're in the office, it's much easier to hold people accountable. You can have brief meetings, you can walk, as a supervisor, you can walk around the office, check in with people, and as a peer, you can pop into, you know, Bob's office and say, hey, Bob, where's that report that you promised me? It's much right. harder to ignore you when you're standing in the office than, it's to, than it is to ignore a Slack message, right? So you need to create venues. That's not a matter of professional development. That's a matter of venues, institutions, systems. You need to create systems to create up and down hierarchical chain of command accountability and then peer-to-peer -peer accountability with your team members. So, so that last... I'm sorry. Yeah, th th those are just six. Those are six areas of internal. Talk separately about external. We can do that, but I'm just giving you a taste of what it means to move right. to virtual collaboration. The kind of things that you need to be thinking about. So, so you're as far as the, the interpersonal stuff is like creating a place where you can go out and it's like a virtual water cooler. You can just chat with people and not have to talk about work and things like that. Yep, exactly. So the two things that I do with my clients, kind of standard things that work, I found that work really well. So when you're having, when you're part of a team, you, you know, you have one supervisor, let's say six team members, it's a pretty standard arrangement. So when you're having that sort of an arrangement, what you want to do is all of these services, Asana, Trello, Slack, whatever, Microsoft Teams, allow the creation of a venue where you can communicate with people. And usually it's about a project. But what you'll want to create is a virtual water cooler for those six team members where in the morning, every day, as they come to work as a sort of morning check-in, you want to check in on how you're doing, how you're feeling, what's going on at home with you, how's your private life going, a fun thing about you that most team members don't know, and then something that what you're focusing on that did work. So, and then you want to engage to you want to respond to at least three other people who are who respond with your comments to three other people who left their morning check-ins. That way, you create a human human bond. It's yes. essentially replacing that water cooler conversation, that morning conversation, you know, over coffee, over donuts. You're still cultivating that trust. You're seeing each other as human beings in that way. So that's a that's an important way of doing it. I I encourage people to have photos as part of that, you know, take photos with your smartphone mm -hmm. of what's going on, your kids and so on. So that's kind of one thing that you want to do. And that creates kind of an obligatory, something that you definitely need to do every day, creates a sort of continual dynamic. Then the second thing that you want to do is separately allow people a channel where they can comment every day about anything that they want, spontaneous. So the first is obligatory policy guideline. Mm -hmm. 
The, third, the second is spontaneous, something that you do spontaneously without any obligation. And some people will use that, some people won't, some people will use it more, some people will use it less. But that creates an opportunity for people to chat about whatever their life, anything that they want mm -hmm. that doesn't have to do with work. So just chatting about personal stuff. That So those two dynamics, the combination of obligatory policy guideline helps people to make sure that everyone's on the same page, gets a baseline. And then the second one provides an outlet for people who want to engage and, and build more bonds with each other and just People who tend to be more extrovert, right? The introverts will tend to use only the first one or you know, maybe a little bit the second one. The, sec the extroverts will use the second one a lot more. So you want to give people with different personalities a lot of room for self-expression. And those two basic things will work for most companies for to address most the cultivation of trust issues for, for internal teams. That's very, very interesting. So I mean, I'm, I want you to talk about your book before we go. But before that, I want to ask you, what kind of advice or information can you give to basically individuals, families that are having to go through this COVID thing and, and cope with not having a job or worrying about getting sick and killing grandma or whatever, which by the way, I'm grandma, so let's not do that. Yeah. Um, um, yeah is there anything that you can say that'll help us with that? Of course. So yes, that's definitely, I, I talk about the, in the book, Not Killing Grandma. That's one of the things that you want to be thinking about. How can you address family members who tend to, who are more vulnerable? And we know the older people are, especially as they pay, pass around something around in their late 30s, early 40s, they, the, the rate of vulnerability to COVID-19 goes up quickly. And of course, younger people are also vulnerable, so we know that they get the disease and they have some lots of negative conditions, long, some negative long-term conditions, they tend to die at a lower rate. But the older you are, the more vulnerable you are. Also, the more other conditions, so we talked about diabetes, there are plenty of others from having things having to do with just medical conditions like cancer to behavioral conditions like smoking that make you much more vulnerable to COVID-19, much more likely to die. So you want to think about how you're going to be protecting those family members who, you know, like yourself, <laughs> grandma and others, you don't, you don't want to kill grandma, you don't want to kill, you know, Uncle Bob, <laughs> you don't want to kill, you know, you, some nephew with cancer, right? Nephew Mary with cancer. So those are things that you need to be thinking about. How do you protect those people? That's one of the really important things. Then another important thing is how will you deal with waves of restrictions and shutdowns though going on, loosening, closing, People aren't thinking about that. We talked about how they're thinking, oh, we'll go back to normal. They're rushing to go back to normal, open things up. Well, guess what? Right now, bars are closing down. Indoor restaurants are closing down. A lot of hair places are closing down because those have been found to cause, right, to cause more the exposure to COVID-19 and sickness due to COVID-19. So those are places you probably want to be avoiding. So think about how you will replace the kind of things that those gave you in your life. I mean, indoor, you can do outdoor restaurants well, if you're, especially if you're in warmer climates and it's not cold, but it's going to get colder eventually. And you, and we know that COVID-19 spreads faster and more widely when it's cold. <laughs> Clearly, it's not stopped by the summer, right? It's spreading in Texas and Florida right now right. pretty quickly, but it's going to be even worse even though it's maybe hard to imagine, once it gets colder. So you'll have to figure out how to replace a lot of the outdoor things that you're doing right now with 
things to, that would satisfy your underlying needs. So what you want to do is look at your underlying needs, entertainment, education, so, I mean, food, whatever, basic material needs, but also your other underlying needs, those things that give you satisfaction, your habits, whatever things satisfy you and how you will replace those. Then, of course, your connection to others. So you talked about going to church. That's one of the things that you don't want to be doing, except if it's in drive-in service. So right now, mm -hmm. drive-in services, people are doing that. It's going to be less available once it gets cold. So you'll want to be thinking about how do you replace those virtual interactions and, of course, if you are part of a secular group, how you'll replace those. If you're part of a club, how you'll replace those. Those sorts of community bonds that are really important to you. How will you engage with friends? That's going to be one of the biggest dynamics. What we've been finding, a number of countries have instituted successful social bubbles where you've decided on a small amount of you know, two to three other households with whom you'll be comfortable interacting because they have the same approach to COVID-19 that you do, same level of restriction. So you want to be thinking about that, maybe those how social bubbles and or how you're going to be doing virtual social distance interactions, especially as the summer, go, you know, as we get into the colder seasons. Those are important things to do. And your career is going to be important, as you mentioned. So right now, a lot of businesses are still keeping people on payroll due to the Payment Protection Plan program. Because if they don't, they'll have to the go, they, they'll have to pay back government money. But those funds will expire soon. They have to keep people on payroll. I think until the end of September or something like that, end of August, September. What will happen then to a number of people who are right now still kept on payroll? We don't know what will happen with the government. I mean, Democrats and uh, Republicans are you know, negotiating about passing some plans. You don't want to necessarily rely on the federal government to be logical and rational, especially in an election year, exactly. right? So this is not something you want to rely. You want to think about your career and how you can manage your career in such a way as to align with the current situation. So I'll give you an example. I One of my coaching clients is the, well, was the COO of a chain of Midwestern restaurants, 24 diners, and you know, or pretty early onward in the pandemic, you know, I talked with her, she realized that, hey, this is not a good sustainable career position. So mm -hmm. we looked at what's going to be happening, what's, and she decided that she needs to make a career change because it's not good for her, not good for her family. So we talked about, we looked at her finances, we looked at what, what her expertise is, and we explored the book Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal, the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic, talks, gives the case study in more depth, in much more depth, all the techniques, specific steps that we took to make the good decisions. But what she eventually ended up doing is transferring her skills and expertise into a position as the regional manager of a chain of large chain of grocery stores. Okay. Now, of course, this is a step down from her career ladder, from the, being the COO. But this is a much larger organization, and it's much more stable in the current environment. You know, grocery stores aren't going anywhere. People are using them extensively. Right. And she has expertise in specifically food preparation, customer service that the chain of grocery stores wants, and she has a lot of career potential progress in this position. So that was a good career move for her, and she can do a lot of her work virtually. Mm -hmm. you know, she doesn't, doesn't require nearly as much person in-person activities, right? So this is an area that you want to be thinking about yourself. How can you transition your existing skills, your existing expertise, into a position that's going to be more aligned with the future of our economy, which is going to be much more virtual for the next several years as we're dealing with COVID-19 at least. And of course, you, what you want to realize is that even after COVID-19, 
these restrictions, these waves of restrictions, loosenings, and so on, people with virtual interactions being used to them, they'll change our habits, norms, and values forever. We'll never go back to December 2019. That's just not going to be Mm -hmm. a thing anymore. Because our values, our habits, our norms, our perceptions, our habits, they'll have been changed fundamentally due to COVID-19. So a lot of the changes we're seeing right now will stick. They'll stay there. Mm -hmm. Maybe people come back to the stage medium and watch football games, but I bet you a lot of people will say, hey, you know, it's fine to just watch it from home. Because they'll, they'll be you used see it to it. better. <laughs> yeah, they'll be used to it, and they'll be like, oh, "Okay, you know, this is this is fine." And mm-hmm. you're not going to have some of the fans that go back to the stadiums, and this will be the case for a number of things: so food delivery, grocery delivery, so many different dynamics. Mm-hmm. So you want to be think, uh, realizing and thinking about what will be the social shifts in the future, what kind of dynamics, how will our society change? It's relevant to your career. Niche, of course, career has its own dynamics. Mm-hmm. Well, it's relevant to your career. And how can you get ahead of these shifts and address, make sure that your career choices are ahead of the social dynamic shifts, not behind them? So the more, the further ahead you can get of the social dynamic shifts, the more you can meet people where they will be, the better off you'll be because you can seize an advantage in the current situation. The same applies to business. That's not only individuals, but to businesses. But you asked about individuals. So that's something for a career change. And more broadly, you don't want to simply, these are things that have to do with our basic fundamental needs, connection to others, careers, you know, entertainment, education. You also want to think about things like personal growth, self-actualization, sense of meaning and purpose. What gives you meaning and purpose? What helps you have self-actualization? How do you serve others? There's a lot in the book, the Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal, the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic, about this topic. But fundamentally, you want to figure out what gives you a sense of meaning and purpose, what gives you that sense of self-actualization and how you can fulfill it in the context of our changed world because again our world will never be the same you don't want to go the next several years without your sense of meaning and purpose so for example if it was important to you to do volunteering for a sense of meaning and purpose then you want to figure out well how can you switch from in-person volunteering soup kitchen whatever to doing virtual volunteering that fulfills the same needs in some different ways and the same applies you know you're not going to do habitat for humanity builds, right? You're, that's right. not something you're going to be doing right now. So you want to figure out how to replace these things with what you have, what has previously been fulfilling for you. If it's been fulfilling for you to, you know, see grandma in person and, you know, interact with her, perhaps you could figure out some virtual ways of doing some of the same things, at least socially distanced ways for now, while it's still, the weather is still nice, that you can still fulfill these things. You don't want to be in the same room with grandma. That's not a good idea. Right. Well, I know that in my family, some of my family members will, uh, their friends will come over and they'll they'll sit outside in the yard and they'll be like yeah. 10, 12 feet apart, just talking, having a, Great. you know, that gives them the connection. And I did want to ask you one more question and um, I'm not sure if you can answer it, but um, for example, our Lieutenant Governor in Texas came out and said that older people should be willing to take the hit from COVID-19 <laughs> in order to re to bring the economy back, to which my answer is you go first and then we'll see what happens. Yeah. But th- we have, there's, there's a really good delivery, assistance delivery conduit available to the government right now. And instead of using that, they are going in and pat, 
trying fighting over passing a bill, passing the CARES Act, passing the HEROES Act. If they were, and, and every state has declared a disaster with FEMA. Now, FEMA can deliver and does deliver housing assistance, rental assistance, mm-hmm. mortgage assistance. Um, they, they can do disaster unemployment assistance. They can do funeral and medical assistance. Mm-hmm. They have, this is a conduit that is set up and ready to go that can bring money directly to the people who need it. And they are not using it. Our federal government, unfortunately, is not, not really, in my opinion, stepping up to this. To this, we need a, a coordinated federal response. And the best way that I can see to deliver is to go through this agency, which also, in a disaster, connects with many other agencies mm-hmm. like the USDA for food, or HUD for housing, or SBA for small businesses. And we we all work together to bring assistance to people. And so. Do you have any idea how we can be encouraging our leaders to start thinking more strategically and helping to really step up and 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 instead of just watching it happen, you know, do something about it? Well, I think the lieutenant governor in Texas is a very ungodly man, considering that you know the God that uh, the one of the fundamental commandments is love your neighbor as yourself, and that is very much not aligned with you know the old people can go and bleep themselves, right? Exactly. <laughs> that is very much not what Jesus would have done, mm-hmm. and so this is something that is I think fundamentally broken about our current political system that somebody who is in that high position can get away with a statement that's so, so morally abhorrent that you know people like Hitler would have welcomed with open arms. Exactly. That's, that's the kind of statement that, that is very, again, very much against the spirit of Christianity, the spirit of religion. How can you say something like that? And this points to how our government response is broken. The government, many government leaders are unfortunately pushing responsibility down to the individuals. They're saying that, well, you should be wearing masks and everything will be fine. But that's not how people behave, and especially if government leaders aren't setting the example. And if they're saying, you know, the, the, we can tolerate all of, all of these losses just for the sake of the economy. What we need to do is fig- the, what they're not realizing. Even if, even if it was the case, and I think it's morally important to do that, but even if it was the case that we could tol- tolerate these losses, people will not be going out and spending money and doing travel and so on exactly. if they're if they are not confident. So a number of places that opened up had to close before government restrictions because people weren't going out to eat. And the government has to be responsible and create a sense of calmness and safety and confidence. Again, the fundamental thing that will get people to a sense of calmness. You have to understand what are people's emotions, what are people feeling. People are fundamentally, we are all driven by our emotions, if we just go with our God, follow our intuitions, and so on. And you can trust that the large majority of the population, who unfortunately aren't listening to this podcast right now, <laughs> will be still driven to will still be driven by their emotions and not right. realizing that they can make better decisions that address their gut intuitions, which are really problematic in the current situation. So what you need to understand is people are driven emotionally. How do you address those underlying emotions in order to create a better situation for everyone as government leaders, as go, as politicians? So that's something that has to really be conveyed to government leaders. They're responsible. It is their responsibility for addressing the underlying emotions, how people are feeling, and to really try to love their neighbors as themselves, yes. however hard it may be for them. And that would mean, yes, providing a lot of benefits, providing a lot of support for people 
people, providing a lot of support for businesses as we're going through this period, pulling together as a country and not thinking, you know, right now there's a lot of focus on saving cruise ships. I have no idea why we're trying to save cruise ships. So the cruise, who will be going on cruises? <laughs> you exactly. can try to, Try to let them rebuild afterward. Those, this is not a thing that will be sustainable in the long term of several years of dealing with COVID-19. What you want to be doing is helping people, saving people, helping them transition to the long term. Right now, the, one of the most horrible things I'm seeing is the government very much focusing on the short term, saying it'll be all over by, you know, by the summer, but you know, it'll blow over you know, maybe by the fall or something like that. These right. hopeful statements that are driven by the politics of the moment, by the political election season, rather than by the long term. How many politicians are saying that, hey, we will be dealing with most likely we will not have the super optimistic scenario of this being over by early 2022. We'll most likely be dealing with it into 24, 25, something like that, maybe longer. So we need to prepare for the long term. We need to change our economy. We need to change our the way that we serve people, provide social services for the long term, focusing much more on virtual interaction and so on, pulling together as a country to go forward. There are a number of countries that have done that successfully. I mean, look at what's happening in South Korea. Mm -hmm. Population of 60 million people, it and we in the U.S. have around 330 million people. Well, 100,000 plus less due to COVID-19 and yes. incompetence. But anyway, around 330 million people. So COVID-19 was discovered in South Korea and in the U.S. on the same day. Don't know if you know that. Yep. But in South Korea, by now, less than 300 people have died. Less than 300 people have died. And I know. Whereas in the U.S., you know, over 120,000 have died. So if you look at these numbers, 60 million in South Korea, 330 million, if our competence, if our government competence was the same as the government in South Korea, we'd have less than 1,500 deaths. Exactly. Yeah, I have friends in Australia who have been, been, yes. been contacting me and saying, what is going on over there? Because they've only had, last I checked, they had, what, 65 deaths, something yes. like that. Australia is another great example of high competence. Mm -hmm. Yes, so the, this is the, and they are doing really well. And South Korea, of course, is much closer to the epicenter of the problem in mm -hmm. China than, and again, same day discovery and so many less deaths. So clearly, government can do, governments can do a much better job if they follow a different policy. And we have a lot that we can learn from South Korea, from Australia, from New Zealand, from a number of other countries that have handled COVID 19 way better than the US. Right. So those are the examples that we need to orient toward. Yeah, I, and I hope our leaders could go there. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Gleb Sparsky. Sparsky, correct? Yes. Um, I recommend everyone read his book, Resilience, Adapt, and Plan for the New Abnormal of COVID-19. I will put a link to your site and your books on our website, www.disastertales.com, and I'll make sure and post it in our Facebook Disaster Tales podcast fans and Disaster Tales podcast. Um, and I think that's about all I can do, but I'll try to do as much as I can. I really appreciate your time and it's been very interesting and I've learned a lot from talking to you. So thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Kate. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales. You can find us on Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes. Disaster Tales theme music is by Stephanie Cerny. You can check out our website at www.disastertales.com. 
and you can contact me at kate at disastertales.com. Thank you for listening. Today's disaster tip. We're all aware of the deadly nature of COVID-19. There's recent evidence that the virus has mutated into a more lethal form. That's why after all this time, it's even more important to continue to wash your hands frequently, wear a mask outside of your home, and distance yourselves from other people when you are in public. Remember, stay six feet or more from others and require that they wear their masks as well. Don't risk yourself, your loved ones, or your friends. Take care of your family by limiting your exposure to situations where you can contract this virus. It's a killer.